If you were with us last week, we took a scalpel to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, the results of that surgery work is up on your screen as uh, I read the text for this morning. And by way of review, uh, we studied last week the concerns that Paul had for his darling church, the church that he called his joy and crown, the church that he would rather go to than probably any other church. The Philippian church was his favorite. So as I read the Scripture, you'll see uh, these concerns uh, heading the slide. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that every name of Jesus, at every name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me, please? If there's one here who may be stuck somewhere in a tense relationship at home, in a conflict with a co-worker, in a funk over where church is, even those who may wonder about the significance of their faith, give me clarity about attitude and its place in our faith and in our healing and its impact on the circumstances you place us in. Amen. <clears throat> Several years ago, I had the opportunity to do some work in Beijing, China. And while I liked the work and was captured by the challenge of working 10,000 miles away, I need to tell you what I remember most about that trip. You can imagine my uh, excitement as I was there, but by the second day I started to really miss my wife. And every day that went on, I missed her more. And by day seven, I missed her so much that I had a literal heartache. Perhaps it was distance, 
Uh, perhaps it was culture or maybe just the plain fact that I adore my wife. Whatever, I can't recall ever wanting to be home as much as I wanted to be home on that trip. So you can imagine my excitement when the last day of the trip was there and I headed for the Beijing airport and knew that in 21 hours I would be home. So soon we were in the air and as you can see by the title of the message this morning, I have a love of metrics. I have my own GPS and I like when I fly to know how fast and how high the plane is and the aircraft's exact direction and route. It even tells me my estimated time of arrival. So in the air it's Beijing, then over Japan and Mount Fuji, and then over the Pacific to Los Angeles where I change plane, and then I know the flight plan from Los Angeles to Denver by heart. I've done it so many times. I know we leave Los Angeles and then sweep over San Bernardino, then Needles, then over Las Vegas and Lake Powell, and every minute and every mile, I know I'm getting closer to home and closer to Jan. Now, you may not know it or not, but deep inside, I'm a hopeless romantic. Since I couldn't wait to see Jan, I developed a plan. I knew that as we flew, we would go south of Montrose, over Gunnison, a little bit south of Salida, then to Fairplay, and at Fairplay, that's when the plane begins to make its descent. There's where the plane starts its way into Denver, and I knew that when we were over Bailey, I would call my wife from the plane. So I did it. I made the call, and it went something like this. Hi, hun. I missed you like crazy. I can't wait to see you. Let's do something. I'm on the left side of the plane, and we're headed north, northeast to 280 degrees, 340 miles an hour at 15,000 feet. In eight minutes and 42 seconds, our frontier plane will be flying 10,000 feet over Chatfield Reservoir. Now, hon, if you go out on our deck and look south, you'll be able to see it. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> At 4.42, I'll throw you a kiss and you can throw one back. And this will be so neat. What followed was about 15 seconds of silence on the phone. And then it came. Why would I want to do that? <laughs> now, I've been bitter about this for eight years. <laughs> now that I've told the world, I feel much better. Uh, last week, we talked about 
the significance of a servant attitude. And today we're going to look at the metrics of servanthood. Uh, The love of metrics is the love of measurement. I love measurement. A few years ago, I went to one of those Boy Scout carnivals with Jan and the kids, and there was the ring toss and dunking for apples and the baseball throw, and the all-time favorite for the macho-type male, the high striker. If anything measures strength, it's the high striker. You know, you use a heavy sledgehammer and you take a swing and a pad and after you hit it, the steel ball climbs a column and the harder you swing, the higher the ball goes. Now, this particular high striker measured strength with pictures of dogs. So if you barely got the ball off the ground, you were a a Pekingese. And, and if you hit a bit higher, you were a chihuahua. And if you hit it higher, you were a dash hound, and then a spaniel, and a collie, and a bulldog, and a German shepherd. And if you hit the top, you were a Rottweiler. Terrific. So I took my hit for 25 cents, and it only went to the chihuahua level. <laughs> now, If you know anything about carnivals, you know that the people who run these events egg you on to try it more. So this guy egged me on by telling me a joke. He said, you know the difference between you and a chihuahua? And I said, what? And he said, the chihuahua's got hair on his chest. (laughs) I was was ready to give him 10 bucks at that point. So I hit it again, and this time I got to the dash hound level. And his teasing didn't stop at the dash hound level. He looked at me and he said, do you know why the cowboy went to the pet store to get a dash hound? To get a long little doggy. Now, Pastor Todd asked me to test the humor threshold of this group, and you'll all be glad to have him back next week. <laughs> Philippians 2 makes a proposal here, and the proposal jumps out at us and says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. And quite frankly, this proposition is over the top. It's a ball that goes up the column and breaks the ball loose and goes somewhere skyward. As I studied this particular topic, I found that this exhortation tortured my mind, it taunted my imagination, and challenged my determination. And the more I looked at it, the more I became convinced that I should at least try to grasp the meaning of this deep, daring, and difficult proposal. And after I did it, I must confess that I sat back in exasperation and said, why would I want to do that? But to take heart with me, to probe this proposition, to examine it, to measure it, and then to understand and accept it is to discover a uniquely powerful way of thinking and doing things. So if you're with me this morning... Please join me as we look at a working definition of the servant attitude. 
And as we look at it, you'll be able to measure it a bit and see just how deep and daring and difficult this proposition is. First, a servant attitude means taking a risk. Look at verse 6. We read, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know those TV shows where the housewife wins the opportunity to go into Walmart and grab everything she can in 10 minutes. So you see the housewife racing through the store and grabbing this and grabbing this until everything is stacked up in her arms and she's holding tight so that she won't let go of a thing as that 10-minute clock clicks to its conclusion. Or perhaps you have the picture of a running back who's fumbled twice in an important game and he's asked to run the ball a third time and you can see him grasping onto the ball as if his life depended on it. Uh, or as my two-year-old grandson grasps my hand as a heavy truck goes rumbling by on uh, the street. The word grasp refers to that kind of intensity. Well, when we see the word grasp in this text, we realize now that when we grasp something, we are holding on to it as if our life depended on it. And notice now that the verse says that Christ thought that his status was not something to be grasped. Second, a servant attitude means taking a risk then to give up rights. Taking a risk to give up rights. We read in verse 6 again, who, uh, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And if you're looking at the verse, you'll see the word but in there, and some words before it, and the words after it. The words before are words about being in nature, God, and being equal with God. And then after the word but, we see the words nothing and servant and humbled himself. Notice now that this is a, a right, uh, a, a privilege, a position that now Christ thought it was not something to be grasped and he took the risk to let it go. Which brings us now to the third part of a working definition of what it means to have a servant attitude. We read in verse 8 that servanthood is taking a risk to give up rights and assume responsibility. We read, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. And notice now that Jesus is saying here or showing us that this is something that belongs to him that is not his responsibility. We don't see the words, that's not my job. We don't see the words, not in my backyard. We don't see the words, let's split the difference, let's negotiate, let's compromise, let's work this out. No, this is a statement that says he assumes responsibility totally. 
even though it's probably rightfully not his. Which means now that we go to the fourth part of a working definition of a servant attitude. Servanthood is taking a risk to give up rights, assume responsibility, and postpone reward. So we read in verse 19 these words. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. The word should now refers to a point in time in the future, and it's not the word might, and it's not the word may, it's the word a form of shall. In a time in the future, the reward of Christ will be bestowed upon him and everything, all reality will be totally organized around him. There is nothing conditional about this statement. So there we have it. A working definition of a servant attitude. A servant attitude is taking a risk to give up rights, assume responsibility, and postpone reward. And high schoolers, if you ever wanted to see a definition of a great employee, there it is. If you're pondering the implications of this statement and you have a consultant, an attorney, an insurance agent, and a financial banker, by now you would say, why in the world do I want to do that? Every one of those professionals would probably say that is absolute suicide. Well, let's ratchet this definition up a little bit more. We've looked at a divine illustration of a servant attitude and what it means. But what happens if we now take this up to the future, or at least the recent future, and look at a servant attitude from the standpoint of how the world compares to it? Two weeks ago, Gene Stapleton died. Interestingly, through the wonder of TV reruns, Gene Stapleton, who was one of the stars of All in the Family, still remains an edgy TV series as it hits the airwaves. Now, All in the Family had four people. First, there was the Meathead, starring Robert Reiner. And Meathead was the live-in son-in-law, the idealistic grad student from New York University, a guy who likes to argue, a moocher, and a lover of controversy, family member number one. Then there's Meathead's wife, Gloria, and she's known in the series as Little Girl. And if you were aware of things back in the 1970s, you knew that the little girl was right on the edge of the birth of women's liberation and the feminist movement. And Gloria was trying to get into that. And then there's Archie Bunker. Archie Bunker becomes the national symbol of bigotry, closed-mindedness, and inflexibility. Arguably, Archie is the husband least likely to succeed. Archie is the cigar-smoking, beer-drinking, impatient, loud, animated, vigorously straight, white, middle-aged, impossible male. 
And the middle of all of this is Edith Bunker, a remarkable character. And while Edith doesn't appear very bright, Edith assumes the role of the subservient housewife, always walking on tiptoe, always running and rushing around. Edith has this high-pitched voice and pokey speech pattern and her tendency to drift into colorful but needless detail made her appear as what Archie described as a dingbat. Interesting that all her digressions make her look that more, more lovely and spirited. So can you imagine all in the family where Archie Bunker, the meathead, the little girl, and the dingbat deal with every personal and social problem that the 1970s presents? Well, last Saturday I heard an interview with Norman Lear who was the creator of Edith Bunker. And when asked about Edith Bunker, he said, when Edith had some deep problem, we had to answer it. And we had to ask ourselves, how would Edith react? And he said, we always thought that she would react the way we thought Jesus might. She was that pure. So I thought, I can choose Aunt Andy Griffith's Aunt B, or Mr. Rogers, or Mrs. Doubtfire, or St. Francis, or Billy Graham, or Mother Teresa. Why don't we get a look at Edith, an example of a servant attitude, because Edith is not cast as somewhat bright or beautiful. She's not supported by dancers or flashlights or, or, or grand sets. Her wardrobe is colorless and ordinary and everyday. She doesn't use sharp words or clever phrases and possibly is not very quotable. Edith is a regular person, and every week this regular person finds herself stuck between a meathead, a little girl, and Archie Bunker, and history will reveal that she wasn't a dingbat. This ordinary working-class mom holds a very difficult family situation by an instinctual, spontaneous servant attitude. Notice how she handles the cling peaches incident. Now, what went wrong at the supermarket? Now, come on, kid. Well, I knew you liked cling peaches. Yeah, I heard that before. In heavy syrup. Yeah, I heard that too. I know. Why don't you tell me how much I've told you so far, then I'll know where to begin. <laughs> you ain't told me nothing so far except cling peaches, which is coming out of my ears. Now, don't say them two words no more, huh? Start your story after the cling peaches and get on with it. <laughs> well, Archie, I had an accident with a car. What? Oh, are you all right? Did you get hit? I didn't get hit. I hit the car. Oh, you don't drive. Yeah, and even if you do, we don't have a car. <laughs> How did you hit a car? Well, that's where the... 
say those two words? David, what are you trying to tell me? That you hit a car with a can of clean bleaching? That's right. You see, I was coming out of the market with my shopping basket full of... Mm-hmm. And, and there was Mrs. Duncan with her new baby. I took a peek in the carriage, but I couldn't see the baby too well. He was all swinged up. Well, you get on with the story. Anyway, I knew I had to say something nice about the baby, so I went, "Oh, isn't that a beautiful baby?" And when I went, "Oh," the shopping basket got away from me, rolled down the hill, and smashed into this parked car and scratched the fender. And then this can of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in heavy syrup <laughs> jumped out and made a big dent in the hood <laughs> it was a freak accident Why would I want to do that? One afternoon on one of my typical Saturday adventures, I came across a huge yellow road grater. It was as stuck as it could be, and I have to confess, absolutely fascinating. As the driver operator spun the wheels, it sunk deeper and deeper, and I couldn't help but watch and watch. And then soon a, a, a dump truck came along, and, and wouldn't you know it, it got stuck too. So by this time, there were a dozen different guys standing around, all bonding with one another about how to solve the problem of getting the stuck road grader out of the mud. This is absolute paradise for a stupid young male, I might add. So they brought in a, a tow truck, and after the tow truck hooked up, every time it applied power, you could see the front wheels of the tow truck begin to, to rise off the ground because it was clearly too small to haul that road grader out of the mud, and all the spectators agreed that it would not work. Then came the heavy hitter, a huge D9 Caterpillar bulldozer, 49 tons of steel powered by 474 horsepowers, a horses of engines. So the engines roar and exhaust pipes belch their smoke and wheels spin and cables stretch and two pieces of equipment strain to get unstuck and then bang, the cable breaks. And it's only after they connect the two with a massive chain that they can pull the piece of equipment out of the mud. Why in the world would I have a servant attitude? We're going to get stuck if we aren't already. We live in a world in which the issues of risk 
and rights and responsibility and reward are sinkholes in our relationships with our spouses, our co-workers, our bosses, our family members, and even our fellow believers. And by instinct and by habit, our focus is to hold on and to demand rights and shift responsibility and grab reward. And in the midst of this particular passage, the Bible comes and tells us that this is the way to get unstuck. The power to change situations is in our power to change our attitude. Negotiators, attorneys, counselors, pastors, anyone who seeks wisdom knows that a servant relationship will help resolve conflict and get things unstuck. Viktor Frankl, a medical doctor as well as a PhD, writes in his book, Man's Search for Meeting, about his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. And they led him to discover the importance of finding power even in the most sordid conditions, and he writes, the last of our freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. In a minute, we can renew our attitude and with it resolve a fight, reverse a failure, rescue a friendship, or retrieve a loss. Sam Walton knows the, the, the power of servitude. The goal of Walmart is to have customer service that's not just the best, but legendary. L.L. Bean, servanthood is just a day-in, day-out, ongoing, never-ending, unremitting, persevering, compassionate type of activity. Robert Half, when the customer comes first, the customer will last. Roger Staubach. There are no traffic jams going the extra mile. Neiman Marcus, service is not a department. It's everyone's job. Did you know that when things get tough, anger provokes anger? Greed provokes greed. Defensiveness provokes defensiveness. Coldness provokes coldness. Dishonesty provokes dishonesty. An attitude is viral. It can spread through a business, a family, or a church with blinding speed. And yet now we have a passage in which we see that attitude solves problems. It's the heart of good business. Attitude breeds other attitude. But I think the most shocking thing about this particular study it melds with often what I do when I get to speak at conferences and businesses. And I love to tell the story, perhaps it's legendary, I don't know, of what the president of PetSmart used to do with all of his stores when he wanted them to increase sales. Legend has it that he would call the managers of the stores every day at 5 o'clock and he would pose this question to them. How many kittens did you sell today? Every day at 5 o'clock, called the manager and said, how many kittens did you sell today? And then the next month he would 
form a different question, and the question was, how many dogs did you sell today? Day after day, how many dogs? And you can guess it, whenever he made that call, the sales of kittens would go up, or the sales of dogs would come up. And I have to imagine, as a businessman and as a consultant, and as one who is absolutely absorbed with the power of measurement and metrics, what it would be like if God called me up every night at 5 o'clock and said to me, David, how many acts of servanthood did you do today? Guess I better have something better to say than why would I want to do that? We close our service this morning by singing these words. Uh, the poetry is compelling. Jesus, all I have is you. You're the hope I'm holding to. You're the hand that holds my life. You're the love that will lead me on. We must remember that this is poetry that is coupled with a practicality that says to us, will you take the risk to lay down rights and assume responsibility and postpone reward? We are your darling church. You've called us out of a mudslinging culture that avoids risk and demands rights and shifts responsibility and grabs reward. And tomorrow we may just get stuck again. So when all our instincts tell us otherwise, grant us Christianity with an attitude. And now to him who is able to keep you from getting stuck and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and evermore. Amen. You are the